Amen. So this morning, um, we're going to continue with our lesson in Ephesians. And for the last couple of months, we've been walking through that book. Seth, Joel McCall, and Jim Cofield has done an excellent job in taking us through chapters 1, 2, and 3. So today, we're going to begin looking at Ephesians chapter 4. But before we go to that text, I'd like to kind of take a little detour and go to uh, another letter that Paul had written to the, uh, uh, to the Corinthian church, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And so, and the reason I bring this scripture up is because I want to bring our attention to identity, to our identity in Christ. Throughout biblical history, God has given his people multiple identities. In the Old Testament, God called his people my people. In the New Testament, we are called the bride of Christ. And even in 1 Peter, we are called royal priesthood. So we've had multiple identities. God has given us multiple identities. But today I want to focus on one identity, and that's the identity that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. So if you would, let's read that. 2 Corinthians verse 5, chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, as we look at this verse, we see that Paul is calling the body of Christ ambassadors. Ambassadors. And so what ambassadors do is they have a message for and, and, they, and they represent the king or the one that has sent them. And so as believers in Christ, a.k.a. the body of Christ, we are God's messenger and we are representative of him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So just as ambassadors, we live in a foreign land. We are foreigners in this world. We are foreigners in this land. We are here for a short period of time. Yes, and we are citizens of heaven, but we live in this world to give God's message to this world. And so our message is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, that they might be reconciled to heaven. And if, as we look at this, as, as we look at this verse, Paul is clearly stating, he said, God is making an appeal through us. In other words, God is speaking through us, and he's speaking to a dying world, and he's saying, he's asking that dying world, he's begging that dying world, be reconciled unto God. So that's who we are. That's our identity. We are ambassadors. We represent Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and what I want to do is, as we look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, I want us to hang on to that identity and see how that identity ties in with the Scripture. Because I, I believe the best way that we can represent our Savior is to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Amen? 
Amen. So as we take a look at our scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, let's see what Paul has to say. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called through the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So as we look at this chapter 4, Paul is making a transition. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul gave us doctrine. He told us about who we are and how we became ambassadors in Christ. That's what 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3 was about telling us, the body of Christ, how we became ambassadors in Christ, how we have been united together to be Christ's representative. Now, as we make this transition to application, Paul is telling us, now, now that you understand who you are, this is how you should act. This is how you should behave. This is how you should represent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One writer said it like this. He said, perhaps more than any book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians emphasizes the connection between sound doctrine and the right practice in Christian life. Far too many people ignore theology and instead want to only discuss things that are practical. In Ephesians, Paul argues that theology is practical in order to live out God's will for us in our lives practically. We must first understand who we are in Christ doctrinally. In essence, Paul is describing how the church who has been purchased by Christ must function to fulfill its mission. And so Paul is saying this, I want you to take time and to listen because we are getting ready to not only tell you, we've told you who you are, now we're going to tell you how you should behave. So now let's take a look, and as we begin to walk through chapter 4, let's, let's unpack what Paul is saying and, and then see how it applies to our life. As we look at verse 1, Paul is saying, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You could say Ephesians chapter, I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is the purpose statement or a theme for the rest of Paul's uh, letter into the Ephesians, verses chapters 4 through 6. And Paul is saying, I am getting ready to tell you what it is you need to do to represent the call that you have. And as we look, let's, let's break down what Paul is saying. First of all, he is saying, therefore, and this is a common practice in Paul's letters. Paul, normally, he, there is a doctrine part of his letter, and there's an application part of his letter. So when he says, therefore, he's saying to the reader, 
What I'm about to tell you is based on the things that I've previously said. So what he's saying here is that what I'm about to tell you in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 is based upon what I've told you in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And that's very important. That's very important that he is tying the doctrine to the application. Paul is also stating that, that we should walk worthy of our call. And we're going to talk about what that call is, but he's reminding us to walk worthy of that call. Next, Paul says, he is a prisoner of the Lord. Now, Paul, history tells us that Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, in a Roman prison when he wrote this letter. But it's interesting that Paul did not see himself as a prisoner of the empire. He says he is a prisoner for the Lord. And, and, and even though more, most of the time that he was in prison, he was chained to a prison guard. But he did not see himself as a prisoner of the empire. And Paul is saying, yes, I'm in prison, but don't feel sorry for me because I'm where I'm supposed to be. This is where God has called me to be and, and, has called, and what he's called me to do. Because we remember, Paul is in prison because he has chosen, he has been called, and he's chosen to obey his call to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he's in prison, because of the gospel. He's in prison because of the gospel. Paul is also stating that every believer, every believer is a blood-bought prisoner for the Lord. We have been purchased by the shed blood of Christ. He has redeemed us through his shed blood. And so we, as a part of who we are, as a part of our identity, we need to remember that all of us, all of us are prisoners of the Lord. And Paul is saying he was sold out to the cause, totally sold out to the cause. He says, I am willing. Christ is my life. There is nothing else that's important to me. Christ is everything to me. And he sold out to, to the cause of taking the gospel to the world, and specifically to the Gentiles. Paul is also saying that as a prisoner of the Lord, we must be willing to suffer. Suffering for Christ is part of the calling. Now, suffering is something that we really, and I'll say this, and hopefully no one will be offended by this, but the church in America, we really don't know anything about suffering. Because as we, as we go to, as we look at what's going on in third world countries, as we look what's going on with beheading of Christians throughout the world, throughout the Middle East, that's suffering. And Paul is telling us, as prisoners for the Lord, we need to prepared, be prepared to suffer. It's part of the calling. Christ told his disciples, he told his disciples, he said, the world will hate you. They will ridicule you. They will isolate you. They will call you intolerant, and they will discriminate against you. Christ said, they will hate you because they hate me. 
And we need to understand that. We need to understand that as a part of our call, as a part of our walk, as a part of our representing Christ, there's going to be suffering. Now, it's very interesting that Paul is writing about suffering in the church because before his conversion, (laughs) he was one of the major factors in persecuting the church. He killed Christians. He put Christians in jail. So believe me, Paul clearly understands how Christians suffer. And he is saying, I am willing to suffer for the cause. I'm willing to suffer so that others might hear the gospel. And, and, and my question to us is, as representatives, as ambassadors for Christ, whom God is speaking through, are we willing to suffer for Christ? And it may not be the suffering that's taking place in some of the other countries, but we have to be willing to suffer. We have to be willing to be isolated. We have to be willing to be discriminated against. That is part of the call. Now, Paul says, he's, his, the last word is urge. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Paul uses this term, and he uses this term in Romans chapter 12, and he uses this term often because it is a plea. I am beseeching you, I'm begging you, I'm strongly encouraging you that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, Paul understands this. He understands this. Not every believer is going to walk worthy. Not every believer is going to walk worthy. Not every believer is sold out to Christ. That's just who we are. That's just the way it is. So when Paul tells us to walk worthy of call, we must live our lives in a way that reflects or shows that we are new creations in Christ and that we have been reformed. We have been transformed by our relationship with Christ. In other words, we are Christ's representatives and our lives should show it. And that what that means is that we need to do periodic self-examination to see where we are, to see how we're conducting ourselves. And it should be a self-examination, not a self-condemnation. We shouldn't condemn ourselves. But as we examine ourselves, as we examine ourselves and see things that need to change, then we need to change. And the bottom line is this, we have the power to change because we are indwelled with the most powerful force that ever existed, and that is the Holy Spirit. Now, let's take a look at verse 2 real quick. Paul says, continues, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. As we look at this verse, Paul lists four characteristics that should be reflected in our lives because these are characteristics of God the Father and God the Son. These are characteristics, these characteristics are not something that we should do, 
It's who we should be. We should be humble. We should be gentle. We should be patient. We should be loving. This is what we should do. These characteristics compared to Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. And as we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, all of those are characteristics of Christ. These that Paul highlights here are characteristics of Christ. So as we look, first on Paul's list is humility. It's a very interesting start. So while there are many reasons for believers in Christ to be humble, I just want to mention a couple or three. First of all, first of all, God hates pride. I'll say that again. And I'll say, and, and, and he has said that in his word, God hates pride. So the opposite of humility is pride. The opposite of pride is humility. Proverbs 3, chapter 3, verse 34 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is nothing stronger than pride that can be used to break unity in, in a family, in the body of Christ, or whatever, any type of community, pride can tear it apart quickly. And God knows that. And that's why God tells us he hates pride. He hates pride. So as we, as I said, as we self-examine, as, as, as we look at ourselves, again, not condemnation. God is not asking us to co condemn ourselves because Scripture tells us, he says, you know, once we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There's no condem condemnation from him, so there shouldn't be any condemnation from ourselves. But he is telling us we need to examine ourselves and we need to look and see if there's pride in our lives because he hates pride. Second, as believers in Christ, we have received the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. That is eternal life through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The gift of eternal life is just that. It's a gift. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. As a matter of fact, we deserve just the opposite. We deserve to spend eternity in hell. But through God's grace, through God's grace, he's given us the gift of eternal life. And so we should be humble. We should not be boastful or prideful because the, and, and there's something we need to think about really as the body of Christ. As we look at the world, as we look at the things that are going on in the world, and we should, first of all, we should under, understand the things that are going on in the world are happening because they know nothing else. They know nothing else. But I think what we also need to understand is this. The only difference 
between us and the world is the grace of God. That's it. We're not better. We're just different. And that difference is God's grace. And, 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 and that's why, you know, we should be humble. It's not anything to be proud of. We should be humble. No one should boast, so that no one should boast. Thirdly, and most importantly, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul reminds us of Christ's humility. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death, even death on a cross. Now, as we, as we look at the last part of that, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The most humiliating death in Christ's time was crucifixion. That is the most humiliating death. Because what that does is that puts you on show. You were exposed. People were walking around. I mean, people came like it was going to a movie. They came to see who was being crucified. And so Christ subjected himself to that so that we could have eternal life. Let's think about that. He, ex he subjected himself to that so that we might have eternal life. It said, you know, God did not count, excuse me, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He said, I am going to give up everything for those who God has chosen and who has, and he's given them to me to redeem. He emptied himself. And even though there are many other scriptures that talk about the reason for humility, in my humble opinion, Christ, our example, is enough. So as we, now as we take a look at gentleness, gentleness, it says, with all humility and gentleness, and with patience, bearing one another in love. This characteristic is something in our society today that is mocked. Gentleness sometimes is called meekness. It's mocked. It's, it's considered to be, if you're gentle or meek, you're considered to be weak. But in reality, a gentle person is in control and they are forgiving. One writer said this about gentleness. It says, gentleness cares for the feelings of others and feels with them. It experiences the full depth of sympathy and empathy. It shows care and gets right into the situation with the person. Gentleness suffers with those who suffer and struggle with those who struggle and works with those who work. Throughout Christ's ministry, he showed gentleness 
to the people that he saved. He showed gentleness to the people that he healed. And he showed gentleness to the people that he fed. However, one of the greatest displays of gentleness from Christ was while he was on the cross being crucified. And, and Scripture tells us that at his beck and call, there were legions, that means a lot, legions of angels at his beck and call who would have come to rescue him. They would have come to rescue him. They would have, as a matter of fact, they would have wiped out the Roman Empire if he had said so. But in his gentleness, he didn't call upon that. What did he do? He asked the Father, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the gentleness of Christ. And that is a characteristic that we, the body of Christ, need to be. That's who we need to be. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We can never be like Christ. We'll never be as gentle as he was because we live in a, in, in, in a, in a sinful body. But we need, as we examine ourselves, we need to take a look and see, are we being gentle? Are we being humble? And are we being gentle? Patience. The next one was patience. And there's two worth, noteworthy points about patience. First of all, patience is one of, the characteristics, one of the great characteristics of God the Father and God the Son. Patience is mentioned throughout Scripture. And we need to understand without patience, without, without a patient father and without a patient son, we would not have received salvation. And sometimes I wonder, it, you know, as the father and son, and I wonder about myself and, 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 I, and the things that I do, the things that I say, the things that I don't do, I marvel at the father and the son's patient in dealing with us. We are very patient. Those of us who have kids or have grandkids, we are very patient with them. But the patience that God the father and God the son has shown us is unbelievable because the fact of the matter is we really don't deserve that level of patience. We don't. But he has given it to us. Another thing about patience is, is that most of us, I'll, I'll raise my hand, me, <laughs> we have a problem with patience. We have a hard time being patient. A hard time. So how do we overcome our struggle with patience? I think, really, the simple answer is to develop a stronger trust in God. We have to learn to trust him in our trials, and the more we trust him, the more patient we will become. Patient is huge. It's a huge part of us properly representing Christ huge part of us properly rep representing Christ. The next one 
is love. Love. Paul states that we must bear with one another in love. Our patience is to, show, to be shown or acted on or displayed by bearing with one another in love. Love is the underlying fruit of the Spirit that we talked about, that I talked about earlier from Galatians chapter 5. And that love that, that, that Paul is speaking of, that Christ has shown, is beyond just tolerating each other. It is godly love in action. So much so, Jesus, in talking with his disciples, in teaching his disciples, he created a new commandment in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you, have, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If, if you remember, when, at the uh, Last Supper, in the upper room, after Christ finished washing the feet of the disciples, he said, I've shown you how you should treat one another. And then he came with this command, a new command, to love one another. For the believer, for the ambassador for Christ, for the church, for the body of Christ, love is not optional. We have to love. It's mandatory. It's mandatory. And the reason it's mandatory because God is love and Christ is love. So the expectation is that we love one another as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, Paul states that we have faith, we have hope, and we have love. But the greatest of these three is love. The greatest of these three is love. So now in verse, in verse 1, Paul told us that we should walk worthy of our call to be ambassadors for Christ. In verse 2, Paul gave us four characteristics of Christ that must be a part of our life. So now as we move into Ephesians 4, chapter 3, Paul is going to tell us about unity in the spirit for the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.3 says, eager to, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. As we look at this verse, we see that Paul is charging, is urging, excuse me, Christ's ambassadors to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And we have to understand that unity in the body of Christ has always been a part of God's plan. As we look through chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3, Paul clearly tells us how he, God, created that unity. And you notice, what, what is, if we look at the Scripture, it's not telling us to create unity. It's not telling us to aim for unity. We are instructed to maintain the unity among believers that already exist. 
maintain the, the unity that already exists. And so, and, and that's what we need to understand. Unity already exists in the body. It is our call to maintain it. So three quick points about this verse. First, Paul is not urging the church to keep the unity of the denominations. He's not urging us to keep the unity of the geographical locations. He's not urging us to keep the unity of the ethnic groups. He's saying that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. The unity of the spirit, which is the result of the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul is not asking for, nor is the Spirit demanding, uniformity. Paul is not saying everyone has to be the same in the body of Christ. We need to accept. We need to accept that there's diversity in the body of Christ. Now, the climate today, when we talk about diversity, you know, people kind of get, you know, they, get, they start saying, whoa, no, 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 hold on now. But we need to understand diversity. God created diversity in the body of Christ. And he told us, he told us that back in Ephesians chapter 3 where he said he made the body one, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. He's already created unity because you're talking about two groups of people that were totally different totally different in the way they functioned, in the way they presented themselves, in the way they worshiped. They were totally different. And we need to embrace unity in the body. Revelation 7 tells us that there's going to be one throne that will be gathered around. There will be representation from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group, every social economic group, God created diversity. And so we need to embrace that and not let that diversity tear away our unity. Second, and very quickly, it is difficult to maintain the unity. We are called to maintain it. And why? One word, sin. Sin. Pride, envy, jealousy, anger, the list goes on and on. We have to understand the one thing that Satan hates more than anything else is unity in the body of Christ because that is our greatest weapon against him. He will do everything he can to destroy our unity. And unfortunately, there are many times when we give ammunition to him to be used against the body of Christ. In verse 2, Paul tells us that we need to be humble, we need to be gentle and loving because without these characteristics, we will not be able to live up to the call of maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Finally, we are to maintain unity in the body of Christ, and this is important, but not at the expense of God's word. In other words, we cannot compromise God's word and we cannot attempt to have unity which is forbidden by God's word. And this is very important. 
we have to understand that the unity we are being asked to maintain was created by God based upon his word, and we have to honor that. Yes, we will be called intolerant, we will be called bigots, we will be called any, any type of name that they can come up with, but we have to stay true to God's word. Seth tells us this all the time, we must speak the truth in love. We cannot have unity with anything that changes our identity. That's very important. We cannot have unity with anything that changes our identity. So now as we take a look at, at, at verse, verses four through six, um, Paul paints a picture of the unity within the Godhead. It is a picture of how they are unified, how they created unity in the body, and how we are instructed to maintain that unity. It, verse four through six says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all. As we look at these three verses, what we need to see is the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're clearly telling us there's only one body of believers, not two. They're telling us we have one faith, excuse me, one spirit, and we have one hope. They're also telling us that, that we have one Lord, which is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God. And what, and what this tells us is that, that they were unified in creating this uni, unity. We need to be inspired to maintain our unity. We need to be inspired to maintain our unity. Paul is saying that the unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created unity in the body of Christ. Seeing that unity should inspire us and drive us to eagerly maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. As I close, the world is always looking for unity or community or identity. In the community of God, the believers in Christ, God has created all of that in the body of Christ. However, we as ambassadors have not portrayed those characteristics. What we need to do as the body of Christ, we need to come together in unity, and when we do this, God will be glorified, and the world will see the church as it truly is, united in Christ.